Welcome to the Tech Ed Podcast, where we visit with leaders who are shaping, innovating, and disrupting technical education. People who are not afraid to think differently, not afraid to try something new, all with the goal of securing the American dream for the next generation of STEM and workforce talent. Just about every week on the Tech Ed Podcast, we welcome guests who are disrupting technical education, doing really really interesting things. We love doing that for you. This week is a little bit different. As you know, from time to time, I come across a topic, an issue, an article, something I saw that is so interesting, so compelling that I can't help but tell you about it. So today, this is your host, Matt Kirkner, and I am going to take the entire episode to talk with you about an article I read not too long ago that totally changed the way that I think about what we commonly call the skills gap or what I call the talent shortage in STEM and technical careers. So let's start here. I do a ton of reading. I read books. I read articles. Just finishing a book on the economics of climate change. Earlier this year, I read Tony Dungy's Soul of a Team fascinating book. I read books about business. I read books about policy. I read books that are just interesting. I read nonfiction. I read fiction. I read a ton of articles. I would estimate probably 40 to 50 news articles a day. The Wall Street Journal, Politico. I subscribe to my local paper, the Journal Sentinel. So I read tons and tons of articles. That means that this year I've read over 4,000 articles year to date. Most of these I read for information, and I have a tendency to read them until they get boring. I read an article until I lose interest, and then I move on to the next article. But every once in a while, I see an article that answers a bigger question or leads to a bigger question. And earlier this year, I read just such an article, and it absolutely blew me away. More on that in a bit, but let me tee the topic up for you by telling you that since I was old enough to work, I have pretty much always had a job. I was a lifeguard and I was a swim coach. When I was going to high school, I worked in an arcade for a while. I did landscaping work. When I got to college, I was a workers comp analyst for Milwaukee County for a while. We'll talk about that in a moment. I was a budget analyst for the parks department, an inventory manager. I worked in the aquatics department. I coached high school swimming while I was in college, and I was the special assistant to the Milwaukee County Executive, Dave Schultz. And in fact, I worked so hard my senior year of college while going to school full-time, I ended up having to take a pay cut when I started my career out of college. I literally made less money the first year out of college than I did my final year in college. The point of all of this is this. I have plenty of issues like anyone else, but work ethic has typically not been one of them. I was always expected to work. I was always expected to pay my own way, and I've always found a way to do that. So I said more on this job as a workers' comp analyst. One of the numbers that we worked with all the time was the year 2080. And if you've worked in payroll, if you've worked in accounting, if you have calculated the number of hours that an individual typically works in a year, you are familiar with that number because 2080 is quite simply the 52 weeks in a year. 40 hours a week is roughly 2,080 hours, the number of working hours in a full-time, 
40 hour per week job, 52 hours a week is 2,080 hours. We use that in workers comp. We use that in my business days to calculate the annual cost on an hourly basis of an employee and so on. So on to this article. It's an article I saw in the Wall Street Journal back in January. It's written by a gentleman by the name of Manet, and I'm going to try my best to get his last name right, Ukeberua, U-K-U-E-B-E-R-U-W-A. I've actually seen this person uh, quite frequently on various news programs, but he writes regularly on the opinion page in the Wall Street Journal. And this book is called, I'm sorry, this article is called The Underside, The Underside of the Great Resignation. Now, I'm going to go back and forth between reading parts of the article and then offering some commentary as we go through it. Let's get started. The article begins, it's been months now, but hiring managers everywhere are still waiting by their phones. They've been told not to worry. The job applicants are coming. Absent workers are just taking some time, right? You know, checking out their options. Now, let me interject. We have heard a ton about this from dozens of guests on the Tech Ed podcast, employers who are struggling to find talent, technical educators dealing with declines in enrollment. Let's think about for the moment, let's think about the data. Every single month, the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics issues its job openings and labor turnover summary. And they did so again in March of this year, summarizing job data for the end of January of 2022. How many job openings in the United States at the end of January? 11,300,000. Why can't our employers find someone to fill their open jobs? Well, because there are 11,300,000 jobs that are open. Now, look, we will never get to the point where every single open position is filled And we know that employees separate from employers. We know that they find new jobs. We know these numbers are prone to ebb and flow. But by any measure, 11.3 million open positions in the United States of America is a huge number. Back to the article. The labor optimists are in denial. Yes, millions of people each month are changing jobs to improve their pay and their lifestyles but millions of others appear to have quit work entirely. The labor force participation rate was 61.9% in December. That is 1.5 points below the pre-pandemic level and barely changed since August of 2020. The article goes on to say, this is the dark underside of the great resignation, the term that the press is applying to the record levels of unfilled jobs in the pandemic era. Now, the article goes on to interview a gentleman by the name of Nicholas Eberstadt, who's a political economist at the American Enterprise Institute. This gentleman has some tremendously insightful and interesting things to say, and we will be quoting him, that is Nicholas Eberstadt, throughout our discussion today. So after granting that the COVID pandemic health emergency has had its impact on the workforce, the article goes on to say the flatlining work rate also fits a pattern that long predates COVID. Says Mr. Eberstadt, quote, male labor force participation has dropped after most recessions in the post-war era. But when the economy recovers, it ticks up, but never gets back to where it was. In other words, staying out of work, even during good times, says the article, has become 
an American tradition. Let's let that sentence sink in for just a moment. In other words, staying out of work even during good times has become an American tradition. Says Mr. Eberstadt, overall labor force participation peaked in 2000 at about 67%. And that counts everyone, by the way, 16 years of age and older. And he goes on to say, we're currently at about five points lower than that, unquote. Population aging is a major cause of the drop with a greater share of Americans now at retirement age. But says Eberstadt, the work rate for prime age people 25 to 54 years of age has also been going down since the turn of the century. Now, the decline started with men, says the article. At the same time, women entered the workforce en masse. Quote, in 1961, labor force participation for prime age men was at 96.9%, Mr. Eberstadt says. Since then, the chart looks more or less like a straight line down. By November of 2021, he says the seasonally adjusted rate was 88.2%. And get this, that means almost one in eight men is sitting out during his best years. The article says this may not sound huge, but the drop is unprecedented. Now, this is where I disagree. One in eight men out of the workforce to me actually does sound huge. Let's look at the numbers. Look at the number of men in the workforce. And let's break working age men into five-year increments. We'll start at age 25 and end at age 54, what many would define as working age men. So our increments are 25 years of age to 29, 30 to 34, 35 to 39, and so on, up to 54 years of age. How many men are in each of these groups? Well, the largest of these groups is the 25 to 29-year-old demographic in which there are 11,880,000 men, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. The smallest of these groups is the 45 to 49-year-old group, in which there are 9,870,000 men. And the rest of these five-year incremental groups are between 10 million and 11.5 million men. So roughly 10.7 million men in each five-year age group for a total of 64,420,000 men in total between the ages of 25 and 54. 64,420,000 working age men in the United States. Now think about this. One in eight working age men means that 8,053,000 men are sitting out of the workforce. I'll ask the question, how do we fill 11,300,000 jobs? Well, 11,053,000 men sitting out of the workforce might not be a bad place to start. So one might point to societal change for the reason. In fact, the article says that. One might point to societal change for the reason. More stay-at-home dads, for instance. Our producer, Melissa, and I had this conversation a couple of weeks ago. Now, true, more men are staying home with their children. According to the Pew Research Center, the number of stay-at-home dads in the U.S. approximated 189,000 men. Now, I'll be honest, just analytically and anecdotally, that number seems a little bit low to me. The largest estimate I could find was 1.4 million dads, and that was preceded by the words researchers say, but that did not 
attribute that particular number to any research group. So suffice it to say, the number is probably somewhere between 189,000 men on the low end and 1.4 million men on the absolute high end. In either event, the number of stay-at-home dads is not 8,053,000. And for that matter, workforce among workforce participation among women is also declining. Says Eberstadt, workforce participation among women, quote, isn't as extreme, but we are seeing the same sort of drift. The work rate for prime age women peaked in 2000 at 77.3%. And it's oscillated since then, standing around 75% today. Moving on in the article, the sum of these trends is a lot of missing workers. Mr. Eberstadt estimates that if the United States maintained its employment to population ratio from just the year 2000, we'd have more than 13 million more workers today. That would be more than enough to fill the record number of open jobs. And as we alluded to earlier, certainly more than enough to fill the record number of jobs open today, 11,300,000. Instead, says Eberstadt, America has been overtaken by the European Union. This is not a bad joke. 30 years ago, America's prime age work rate was, quote, nearly 10 percentage points above Europe's. Now Europe is a couple of points higher than Americans. The drop reduces household income, corporate earnings, and government revenue. So this is me now. One of the questions I had in reading this article is, what are these people doing? What are these 8 million plus people, 8 million plus working age men doing while they're not working? Everstat answers that question as well. Quote, by and large, non-working men don't do civil society. Their time spent helping in the home, their time spent in worship, a whole range of activities they're not just doing. And he cites as his source the Bureau of Labor Statistics American Time Use Survey, which compile, compiles respondents' self-reported habits. So what is filling the time of these idle men? What are they doing while they're not working? They are, quote, watching. The article says, what is filling idle men's time? There's a lot of staying at home, it seems. And what they report doing is watching. They report being in front of screens 2,000 hours a year, like that's their job. Now, let's think back to that conversation we had when I was referencing my time as a workers' compensation analyst and knowing that a full-time job was 2,080 hours a year. And the average non-working man reports being in front of a screen 2,000 hours a year. It literally is like it's their job. Another question I had is, how are these people supporting themselves? This isn't from the article. This is from some of my own research, certainly unemployment benefits. And those benefits were escalated, as we all know, during the COVID pandemic. Many of them are living off their savings. Some people are retiring prematurely and cutting back on spending. I guess no harm in that if you can afford to do that. But we do have a lot of folks retiring from the workforce early. And the other one is social security disability insurance. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit. So in the interest of time, I'm going to skip 
through the article a little bit later on, and we will begin again. The article says most of the workforce lost during the pandemic has been among older folks, and Mr. Eberstadt doesn't shy away from calling such early retirements premature. Quote, I'm not going to judge any individual situation, but I can talk about general trends, he says. Like all other advanced Western economies, we've seen we've been blessed with an explosion of health since the end of the Second World War. COVID deaths in the past two years, of course, will be a miserable exception, but generally, quote, as people live longer, they can also work longer. He then talks a little bit about the revolution in technology, and he talks about what has happened in the workplace. He says this revolution in technology and in the workplace means that there are very few Americans who have to do backbreaking work into their 60s. And I will interject that as I was reading that, I thought about an interview we did last year with Peter Anderson, vice president of Cummins. And Peter talked about walking through one of his manufacturing facilities and having a woman who was getting on in years in terms of her working age years, pull him aside as he walked through the plant. And she had something to say about the robot that had been put in her work cell. And what she had to say was, thank you. This robot has enabled me to continue working because as I got older, it was harder for me to do the physical work that I was doing day in and day out. And this robot, these robotics, this automation has helped me do that work. Moving on with the article, the declining work rate has many causes, but there's great debate between economists who assign more blame to structural economic changes and those who fault government payments. Everstad says he leans toward the latter group. He says declining labor can't demand can't be the chief cause of the dropouts because work generally hasn't snapped back when the economy has. From the year 2008, the recession in 2008 until about 2016, it was possible for accredited opinionators to say, quote, you idiot, there isn't any more work out there. But by 2019, that was obviously not a problem. He says before the pandemic, we'd passed this remarkable threshold where there were more unfulfilled jobs in America than there were people out of work looking for jobs. And that, by the way, is even truer today, says the article, with almost two open jobs for every unemployed man and woman. Lack of opportunity isn't the main reason folks are sitting out. Of course, no job seeker is fit for every job. Some economists say the shift toward information and service-based work has made it hard for many people, especially less educated men, to get hired. Now, this is me now. All the more reason by the way, to invest in training to fill these jobs of the present and future. We talk all the time on the Tech Ed Podcast of the importance of filling these jobs. All the more reason in an era where we may be shifting toward information and service-based work that some men may not be presently trained to do. Back to this premise, though, that we have a shift toward information and service-based work, Everstat discounts that premise a bit. There is not, he says, there is not, there has been a lot of work that does not require college, in restaurants, in hotels. There are also some things that might require a strong back, but not necessarily a higher degree, like construction and trucking and things like that. These are among the fields, says the article, in which pay is rising fastest today but few sideline workers have jumped in. Now, this is me again, not just trucking and construction, but welding, machining, mechanical maintenance, automation, IT, 
And even those that may require those jobs that may require a tech diploma or an associate degree don't require a four-year degree. Why do you think we here at the Tech Ed Podcast are such huge advocates of credentials like MSSC and the Smart Automation Certification Alliance and NACTI? These are the fields in which pay is rising the fastest today. And few sideline workers have jumped in, but we need to find ways to train them for these incredible opportunities. In contrast, says the article, the increasing size and availability of government benefits have clearly helped to keep people off the job. Quote, the archipelago of disability programs has a lot of really tragic long-term consequences, Everstat says. The share of working age Americans claiming social security disability insurance, I talked about that earlier, has roughly doubled in the past half century from 2.2% in 1977 to 4.3% last year. 4.3% of working age Americans claiming social security disability insurance. The federal government now spends more on disability insurance, says the article, each year than on food stamps and welfare put together and few recipients of social security disability insurance work. So Everstadt wrote a book called Men Without Work. And he says in that book, it's hard to prove that these programs caused the male flight from work, but he argues that they at least financed it as the benefits cushion the impact of dropping out. The article goes on to say the increase in transfers after COVID arrived amplified this effect. Eberset says, I think it clearly encouraged the flight from work. We did this limited dress rehearsal for a universal basic income, a situation for a year and a half where there were many more people obtaining unemployment benefits than actual unemployed people. Hiring increased in many states when the $300 a week federal unemployment bonus ended, the result of which what Eberset calls a natural experiment. And then the article says he proposes no sweeping fix for the wave of worklessness. So this is me again, not the article. He proposes no sweeping fix, but let's consider at least a few. Number one, we need to be open to the possibility that the size and availability of government payments is contributing to the problem. We don't do politics here on the Tech Ed podcast, but we do policy. And with 11.3 million open jobs, if we're paying people not to work, we better be doing so consciously and with good reason. The article also says, of course, no job seeker is a fit for every job. That is true. (laughs) But how do we make sure more job seekers fit more jobs? We do that by training them. That means training them towards certifications, training them toward degrees, and training incumbent workers. That means in existing employers training their own people. Now, I'm generally somewhat of a skeptic when it comes to government spending, not against it, just skeptical. But I, for one, see the funding coming into technical education right now as an absolute godsend. Let's just make sure we're spending it on equipping people with the right skills and competencies and not squandering away this once-in-a-lifetime investment opportunity. I'll also tell you that I'm open to addressing childcare and transportation in any other barriers that are keeping people from working. And I'm becoming an advocate for re-entry programs that take people who are currently incarcerated and find them pathways into the workforce when they are released. 
Finally, we need to stop stigmatizing lower skills and lower skilled and less glamorous jobs. I saw lives totally changed in manufacturing by people who started at a simple point and had an incredible career that was life-changing, that enabled them to support their family, that was sustainable, that was incredibly good paying. And finishing off with the article, Eberstadt notes that widespread contempt for many ordinary jobs may be making the problem worse. Journalists and economists who cheer on the great resignation often stigmatize work in the same breath, writing off low-paid jobs as not worth taking. He says it is astonishingly condescending to say that some work is meaningless, and it shows an astonishing ignorance of how other people live. The article says it's wonderful that millions of people are finding better work, but there are millions more who could fill the jobs they're vacating, and disdain for lower skill work helps keep those people away. It says instead of stigmatizing low skill jobs, we would be better to stigmatize idleness, especially among young men. Not long ago, says Eberstadt, the idea that one in eight men should be neither working nor looking for work would have been an absolutely horrifying prospect. Re-embracing that perspective could do a lot of good for the economy as well as for idle Americans. So ends the article, and so I continue. Let's stigmatize idleness. Let's invest, not in encouraging it, but instead invest in technical education and let's tear down the barriers that keep people from working. Stigmatize idleness, invest in technical education and tear down barriers that keep people from working. That's all for this week. It's time to get back to work. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Tech Ed Podcast. If you haven't already, subscribe, leave a review, and if you like this episode, share it with a friend. New episodes launch every Tuesday, so listen in next week.